welcome to State of Health Podcast. This is your host, J-Mart. On this podcast, I will share my knowledge and experience as a personal trainer and health coach and talk about my interests and experiments in physical training, nutrition, and other lifestyle factors involved in health. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by my wife, Dr. Carly Willemsma. We had a brief discussion about the all-important end-of-life decision whether to get resuscitated and what to take into consideration if you want a do-not-resuscitate order. Dr. Carling Willensma did a great job sharing her knowledge and experience about this topic, and I'm certain that you'll find value from listening to this episode. Just before we get started, this is a reminder that you can try my free bodyweight training program called Body Basics, which requires no equipment to get started by going to subscribepage.com slash bodybasics. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to smash the like button for the YouTube algorithm. Hit subscribe if you like the content and hit the notification bell too. If you're listening through a podcast app, could you please share the podcast with a friend who may also enjoy listening and discussing it with you? All right, here's the episode. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me on another episode of State of Health. This is your host, J-Mart, and today I'm joined by a special guest. Her name is Dr. Carly Willemsma. Uh, I just call her Carly because she's my wife. Uh, everybody, welcome Dr. Wilmsma to the show. Hi, Carly. Hey, guys. Nice to be joining you on the show, John. Uh, it's really nice to have you come on your first episode, hopefully first of many, uh, because you have a lot of knowledge about health and you are a valuable resource. And I would like to pick your brain a lot more and keep myself up to date with what's going on in terms of health from like a medical perspective. Of course, my perspective is more from like physical training with some nutritional advice, but yours is a little different. Uh, for those who don't know, Carly is, or Dr. Wilmsma, I will refer to as Carly. She's given me permission, but she works at uh, <laughs> Humber River Hospital at the emergency department. She's been there since 2019. And, um, so kind of, uh, when people think of the emergency department, uh, a common thing, uh, they say is, oh, you're, they must be crazy. You know, you're dealing with, uh, you know, emergency <laughs> situations every day. You must be running on adrenaline all the time. Is that true? Um, yeah, I would say a lot of the time that's true. I do only emergency medicine. I don't do anything else. Mm. And I work in one of the busiest emergency departments in the country. I think we tie with Brampton for like the volumes that we see in a day. So I don't sit. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm continuously running around seeing people. Um, but most people think it's, you know, an absolute adrenaline mission all the time. And to be honest, a lot of the time I'm just dealing with people's anxieties. I certainly do get pretty serious cases rolling in the door, like gunshot wounds and a whole bunch of stuff. But I also just get your worried well patient. And that's probably more than 80% of my job actually is just reassurance. Yeah, yeah. So on a regular basis, then if we were to put some like estimates of frequency, how often is your day interrupted by an emergency, like trauma, heart attack, stroke? Like a true emergency that's dying right then. Mm -hmm. Um. I won't have one every shift, okay. but most shifts have, I would say on average one, you know, would die, you know, within the next few hours without intervention. Um, and you know, dying imminently in the next few minutes, yeah, every couple of shifts we're coming in already dead and you know, what we call a code, mm -hmm. maybe once every few shifts. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and so that code, uh, that's kind of the uh, theme of what today's podcast is going to be about and kind of what you do, what is involved and kind of what are some of the decisions that people need to make ahead of time, actually, to have the best possible medical treatment that they can get uh, that's in line with, you know, their needs and wants. When someone's heart stops, the code that you do, you, you do CPR, defibrillation, breathing machines. These are the things that are done commonly, right? Yeah, I think, you know, it's important for your listeners to understand, like, when I say in medical jargon, I am running a code, that means that someone's heart has actually stopped. And so, we, you know, another word for that would be a cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is a whole bunch of measures to try and restart the heart again. Someone's technically dead at Mm -hmm. that point. And then we're doing a bunch of things. CPR is one of them. So the chest compressions, Mm -hmm. um, giving some very strong medications is another to actually try and get pulse back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And so uh, when do the breathing machines come in? Well, um, they come in during this whole thing. So, I mean, if I can paint a picture... Often, if I'm in the room during a cardiac arrest, I'm standing at the foot of the bed and I'm, you know, giving commands to give various medications. There might be four nurses in the room who are taking turns doing CPR and delivering these medications. And then since we're at a big center, we're lucky we usually have a respiratory therapist who's standing at the head of the bed. And while I'm kind of running the show, at, you know, at the base of the bed, they're kind of at the head of the bed and they're putting in an endotracheal tube. And they're usually not connecting them to a breathing machine yet, they're, but they're having to breathe for them. So they'll stand there with one of these bags that you can press and it puts oxygen into their lungs. But realistically, after they come back, if you get a pulse back, people don't often wake up. There's brain damage and they have to go on a breathing machine to the ICU for quite a long time after we get what's, we get a pulse back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, like you said, people don't often come back. And when you look at the statistics, I've seen something being estimated at 10 to 15% of the time the heart can be restarted. But even half of those patients who survive will have some sort of brain damage. Is that kind of the stats yeah. that you know as well and have seen kind of in practice? Yeah, so, I mean, the stats can vary a lot depending on your situation. There's, so there are a few modifiers. One is how quickly do you get to someone after they've had a cardiac arrest, Okay. Um, so if someone died in their sleep or something and they didn't have a DNR in order and a family member wakes up and says, oh my God, this person's not breathing and we have no idea how long they've not been breathing, that person's not coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very unlikely, right? right. But um, and I, I remember as a bystander once, like completely not as a medical professional, um, someone was crossing the street and just collapsed and I you know, immediately started doing CPR on this person. Mm-hmm. And so did like a fireman who happened to be a passerby. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe this person had a chance, right? Because mm-hmm. the, the timing. Yeah. Was perfect. Um, I remember even the nurse had like a mouth to mouth thing. Yeah. I don't know what it's called. That yeah, they have one of these valves that you right. can kind of put and she just happened to have it. I, or I'm not sure if she got it from a store nearby or something. I think she always said, she said she always carries one because she's a nurse and she's just seen this happen so often. That, right. Yeah. God. To think that you see this happen so often. But um, so there's a difference between, you know, the amount of time that you spend down. Mm -hmm. There is a difference in also, you know, what what kind of patient you're starting with. 
right? So, you know, an old 87-year-old person who we know has a bad heart, has had previous heart attacks, strokes, what have you, is very different than a 40-year-old who just has, you know, now a newly discovered, like, an electrical disturbance in their heart. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you might need to give someone one shock, and they're perfect, and they wake up right away. They don't mm -hmm. even need to go to the ICU. They walk out of there. Wow. But, you know, the 87-year-old is, you know, the chances are just very different. So all comers, um, I would say probably less than 10% after a cardiac arrest would survive to discharge. It's probably most of the papers that I've seen. But within that, there's incredible variability to mm -hmm. having, you know, a far less than 1% chance of survival. Mm -hmm. And we know that as you're mm -hmm. rolling in the door to, you know, maybe like 30% chance mm -hmm. of survival and actually living a full life afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So it's very context dependent. If you're a young person and uh, you have not very many medical conditions to worry about, this is likely uh, you want to receive these chest compressions and anything the doctors can kind of throw at you to save you. Yeah, and to be clear, like chest compressions, we said are one of the things, you know, the, the shocking machine where we deliver like the high dose of electricity to kind of try and jolt your heart back mm -hmm. into a normal rhythm is another thing. And then the breathing machines are an adjunct that we generally require as well. Mm -hmm. So with all that said, is there ever a time where a patient would not want to receive resuscitation? What are some of the things they need to take into consideration to be able to fully answer that for themselves? So in order to decide whether or not you would want resuscitation or whether or not you would want to be a do not resuscitate patient, mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's a very personal decision. And I think for a lot of people, it depends on values sometimes religion comes into it for some people and so you have to kind of marry your personal outlook about um you know what what you would want in general but with an understanding of medically what that means so um you know in order to resuscitate someone like i said to paint you a picture we tend to you know do a lot of chest compressions it's very rough we often break ribs this might take like a half an hour to get a patient settled if we're getting a pulse back in the emergency department but then i'm handing them off to the icu and if they survive the icu they're spending um usually weeks in it in in the hospital system and you know for the amount of time that the heart is not beating that's all brain damage and organ damage right um and so you just have to think about okay well if you're a young healthy person Maybe you can run that gauntlet and maybe you can have a meaningful life afterwards. But realistically, even a young and healthy person may have brain damage, may have sort of changes to their personality, changes to what they can do after a long hospital stay like that. And after this happens to an elderly person, like the minute you add um, some disease conditions to the mix, um, make them less healthy, running that gauntlet becomes much, much more difficult. And the function that you have after you leave hospital is almost certainly going to be much less than mm -hmm. what you came in with. Mm -hmm. And so you have to ask yourself, okay, this, you know, the, the idea of doing the CPR, which may cause some suffering, you know, it's hard to know what the patient experiences. And then the ICU stay afterwards, which most almost certainly causes some suffering and is mm -hmm. hard. Mm -hmm. And the life that you might have afterwards, mm -hmm. um, you know, is that something that you would want? Mm -hmm. You know, people don't often think of that. It's like, mm -hmm. would you would you want to survive with really significant brain damage or be someone who's, 
you know, no longer able to walk or to speak or mm-hmm. to feed themselves or toilet themselves, someone who mm-hmm. would need total care. Because mm-hmm. that, that's on the table for a lot of people mm-hmm. who survive um, mm-hmm. these cardiac arrests. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to be someone like that, y- you know, you might want a DNR, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So you really have to take into consideration what your baseline level of function is and uh, at least hedge that uh, the function that you come out with is going to be significantly less and for you have to be okay with that. Yeah, for most people it is, and you have to decide, is that is that worth it to me? Because mm-hmm. some people will say, any life whatsoever is worth saving. And some people say, well, you know, let me die peacefully. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's there is a, a personal component to that decision-making, certainly. But, you know, I try and give people, when they come in, an idea of what life could look like after, um, you know, they've made a decision about resuscitation if they need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in your experience, how many people have made this decision ahead of time and how many people do you have to go through with the conversation explaining and detailing all these things? I try and always check with people um, when they're actually going to be admitted to the hospital or if they have something that could be critical that day. So those are the two groups that that I try and talk about it with. And maybe half of the people have thought about this, Mm -hmm. you know, and usually the people who have some kind of critical illness is it's not a huge surprise. It's, it's usually an exacerbation of a pre-existing condition mm-hmm. in an elderly person, usually. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's always surprising that some people have absolutely no idea because, mm-hmm. um, right. you know, they've been around the block long enough yeah. and they've interacted with the medical system long enough mm-hmm. that they should have some kind of idea at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we all should. And I guess... We, we don't because people don't like talking about it, right? It's very, it's a difficult subject. It is. It is difficult. Um, hard to say what if, hard to think about what if. It is really hard to think about what if. It's also not that functional of an attitude to not be able to think about that what if, though. Because, I mean, it's one of the only certainties in life is that eventually you are going to die at the end of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I try and be blunt with people. I You know, when I'm broaching the subject, I say, look, everybody dies. It might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but we have to think about how your life is going to look, you know, when that happens. Um, and people respond often okay to that, you know. They, they say, oh yeah, that's a very practical conversation. It's not necessarily terrifying, but... Um. <laughs> well, that's, that's great to hear because it is an important conversation to have and uh, it's important to overcome that displeasure and start discussing this, this uh, like, what you want because... Uh, you don't want to end up in the hospital not having made that decision in a very critical uh, situation without anybody else knowing. Well, yeah, and it's really, I can probably imagine that it's one of the worst possible fates to, you know, wake up in an ICU, spend weeks there with one of these tubes down your throat that's breathing for you. You're semi-conscious, you can't speak for yourself, you can't move for yourself. The incidence of actually post-traumatic stress disorder after an ICU stay, I don't remember the stats and you could never quote me on it, but it's alarmingly high. Mm-hmm. And if that's something that you, number one, didn't expect could happen, or number two, actually knew you didn't want, mm-hmm. um, but didn't communicate it to a family member, it's, it's pretty upsetting. Mm-hmm. I know in a previous conversation you and I had about this, we talked about how when you're talking to someone about making this decision, one of the things you really like to bring up is like the quality of life that they uh, that they want for themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, you have to spend time thinking about that because it's not easy to come to a decision on that with just kind of like thinking about it for less than a minute. Because there's probably some certain certain things you're willing to make just changes. So certain things about your lifestyle you're willing to, to change, but well, others you you just like you can't. So yeah, mm-hmm. well, you know, for instance, I talked to someone. This isn't a DNR conversation at all, but just one of my last hospital shifts, I talked to someone who had very bad diabetes and very bad peripheral vascular disease, and he had a foot that honestly looked like it was heading for amputation in wow. the near future, and. It's just pretty sad, and I, you know, I, I try and gauge like, okay, well, where are we with your your vascular surgeon specialist? Like, what's happening here? Because he comes in with this raging foot infection, and it actually turns out that they're doing everything that they can for it. We're kind of in a wait and see pattern okay. to see what's going to happen, which is important for me to know. Right. But Absolutely. he said, if they take my foot, I would like to die. Like. You know, like his, he he had very much thought about his quality of life and he had decided that if his foot was gone, life was not worth living. And whether that's misguided or not, Mm -hmm. um, it's just like, at at least he was thinking about it, you know, know, he's he's trying to think about the future and like what kind of Mm -hmm. uh, things that he wants for themselves. Whereas some people, um, they really, if you try and broach the subject with them about future sort of health deterioration mm-hmm. they're just there's some people that are just not able to have that conversation right right yeah. now if somebody does decide they want to get a dnr or at least whatever fill out a form for it at least tell someone close who might be you know in charge of their health about it it doesn't mean that they're just going to stop receiving health care right you still <laughs> it just it simply means there's certain elements of healthcare that you're opting out of can you go in that, into that correct so i think you're, you're bringing up, yeah, a very, very good point that there are different levels of care that someone can receive, right? So, you know, at the very, very, very end of life, um, you know, we can start at the bare bones where we're just making somebody comfortable, okay? Like we give morphine and sedatives as required, okay? mm-hmm. um, and we wouldn't do anything else. You know, treating infections as they come, we wouldn't we wouldn't do that. Okay, so that would be suitable for someone who you know we expect to die any day from their cancer or well, I mean that's one good example. Right. And then, but then you can add levels to this, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you can add what we call in Ontario at least we call it you know active medical management, where you know if someone has an, like an acute medical concern that brought them to hospital, like they have a new pneumonia or they have a new urinary tract infection, which is a very serious thing for elderly people. You know, we give them medicines and antibiotics and fluids, and we are trying to save their life. But yeah, um, but if they get so bad that their heart stops, mm-hmm. um, you know, then we wouldn't try and bring them back. Okay. And we can talk to them about, you know, various things that they would want because you can kind of separate, well, if someone has a breathing problem, okay, would you want breathing assistance? Mm-hmm. Um, cause sometimes you can, you can do that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but if they're, you know, and some people would say, okay, yes, some breathing assistance is fine with me, but if my heart were to actually stop, don't do the CPR. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can kind of tear apart some of that minutia. And then at the very highest level of care, of course, it's, you know, it's CPR, it's breathing machines, it's very, very strong medicines that artificially make your blood pressure 
such that you'll perfuse your organs. Um, and you, so those are like the three kind of tiers, right? Comfort measures, active medical management, and and resuscitation should you die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Thank you for explaining that a little further. Uh, I think that's a lot clearer for everyone. When I was doing a little bit of research before we had this talk, it, there seems to be uh, this uh, sentiment about the whole term do not resuscitate DNR and how it's kind of falling out of favor. I think in connection to what we just spoke about and how you can still get certain types of care, DNR is falling out of favor because of this, because there's a kind of like this negative connotation that's like on what the healthcare providers are not doing for the patient. Right. So this kind of might make some families or some patients uncomfortable with actually getting a DNR when it might be in their best interest because they, it kind of makes them feel like they're giving up. Yeah, I think, you know, if we kind of imagine the standard patient that comes into my emergency department where they haven't had this discussion, most commonly the person is in their 80s at least. You know, that's, these are the people who end up dying in hospital. And um, even before their critical illness, they probably wouldn't be able to speak for themselves. Um, and... Then, of course, the very, very distraught family member who didn't expect this pneumonia or this heart attack is you're trying to broach this subject with them. And not only have they not had that conversation with their loved one, they're feeling just very upset that this has happened in general. They're not in their right mind. They're making decisions that are more guilt and emotion based rather than sort of practical future oriented decisions. Um, And so, yeah, if you call it a, a DNR, I mean, we still do call it a DNR for the most part in Ontario, but I try and explain what that means. But if you're not careful about how you're phrasing things, um, the family often will think that this is a giving up maneuver and they're not doing everything they can for their family member. Mm -hmm. And that means that they must not love their family member. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of progression of thinking that is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, but is often how people will sort of uh, frame it in their mind. Yeah, 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 for sure. And then they end up kind of potentially, you know, making a decision that might have gone against the wishes of the... Right, and they'll say, well, you have to do everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you know, we actually don't have to do everything. We can do what we think is best, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's making somebody comfortable, Sometimes that's giving somebody an antibiotic and just seeing how they'll respond to that. And sometimes that's doing everything, but mm-hmm. it's, it can be, there can be different answers to what's right for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so in kind of response to this uh, negative kind of connection of DNR, I've come across this new term called allow natural death, A-N-D. It's supposedly going to be used instead of DNR to put an emphasis on what you're allowing the patient to do at mm-hmm. the end of their life. You're allowing them to have a peaceful, natural death. And then that way you can provide comfort and support to the patient and their family as opposed to kind of the other position, which is a bit juxtaposed. How do you feel? Is this a sentiment you agree with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say at my workplace, I don't hear that term being thrown around that much. I try not to label it too much for patients. I try and just explain like what the decision means and Mm -hmm. allow them to make the decision without really saying DNR. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But, and and that's because I find that term not helpful, especially for families who hadn't discussed it before and are coming in during a time of crisis. Um, But allow natural death 
I mean, they like it. They think it sounds、mm. um, a lot more friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if it's important to have a label on something in order to be able to abstract it out for someone and be able to have a definite conversation about it without having to kind of、uh, run around the subject. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly there are some families who have been in and out of the hospital system and have talked about it with their family members and have made a decision. So that family member, I can just check with them and say, "Oh, I see that there's a DNR listed on the chart. I'm just checking that that's everybody's wishes still." Because we always kind of confirm that, and they say, "Oh, yes." So it's useful to have the label then because you know that that conversation's been had before, and you can just. Double check,、mm-hmm. right? And there's a label that facilitates that. But for someone who hasn't had that conversation before, I find starting with the labels as opposed to the explanations is probably to the family's detriment. Yeah,、um, I see that. But I mean, if they could, I mean, if there's a sort of rebranding of of DNR, <laughs> and we just yeah, have like a friendly, silly, a friendly, yeah, I know. It, 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 I think probably a lot of attitudes would change about it. You know. Then yeah, you could just fill out an allow natural death form, and that's、mm-hmm. that does the same thing.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, ultimately, education is the most important driver of like making good decisions. So I really appreciate you kind of talking about this and、uh, sharing your expertise on this. I'm gonna finish on one last question, and、um, this is re- with regards to kind of like the paperwork required for a DNR. My understanding is there's a like a provincial specific form for a DNR, but in a previous conversation with you. It seems like that form's not really all that important. More so, it's important to have somebody who、uh, knows that you've made this decision and who can communicate that to、yeah. a doctor in a clear way. Could you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, you can fill out this provincial form, and there is an official provincial form.、Um, and but you know, a lot of the time, you just have to think about okay, how is this going to go down when?、Mm-hmm. You know, someone might require resuscitation, right? Someone has died, and an ambulance is being called to come and start CPR. That's often how this happens. A paramedic is not going to search your house at that time for a DNR form, okay? And they really have no way of knowing if this is up to date. You're allowed to change your mind at any time. Exactly. So、mm-hmm. um, the form can be useful, you know, if you hand it to a family member and say, "This is what I want."、Mm-hmm. Um, and then the family member is actually present as you know the paramedics get there,、mm-hmm. or they've just not they know just not to call the paramedics in the first place, you know.、Um, so you know that that's useful. The form is useful, and I would say that when the form is probably the most useful. Is in a patient who has been admitted to a long-term care facility,、right. um, because then it's healthcare professionals who are taking care of them, and they have a chart、mm-hmm. in a centralized location present、mm-hmm. at all times.、Mm-hmm. And so, if something happens to someone at that time, they're very quickly pulling out the chart and saying, "No,、mm-hmm. DNR, we are not going to proceed." Right.、Um, mm-hmm. But for for someone from home, it's it's much more important to just tell the family member what you would like to do. Yeah, that、yeah. no, makes a lot of sense. You just don't know the, the logistics of how things are going to happen, so you just, or you have to prepare for the worst case, which is that no one's going to see that piece of paper. Yeah, like I know, my parents have told me, what, and they're not even unhealthy people. They have no, no diagnosed medical conditions, but they say when the time comes, just let me go.、Mm-hmm. You know, and I would、mm-hmm. do everything that I think could practically work for them,、mm-hmm. but、um, you know, if they have an out of hospital. Cardiac arrest.、Mm-hmm. Probably going to tell the paramedics, no, thank you. Yeah. 
that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a again a difficult subject to discuss, <laughs> and we kind of ended on like a little bit of a down moment. But yeah, it, it I apologize for that. But you know what? It's uh, you know everybody just has to live their best life while they have it, and that's mm-hmm. what that's what we do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, live your best life. <laughs> be thankful. Be grateful for every second that we have, and appreciate every little blessing. So thank you everyone for listening in, joining in on this episode of State of Health. Really enjoyed this conversation, Dr. Wilmsma. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds uh, funny when you say that. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, yeah, definitely have to do this again. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thanks again for watching or listening till the end of the podcast. If you have any follow-up questions or comments, please reach out and let me clear up any uncertainty. Either leave a comment or email me at newsletter at jmartfit.com. That's all I have for you today, ladies and gents. Connect with me on social media at jmartfit on Instagram and jmartmoves on Facebook or get my free bodyweight training program at subscribepage.com slash bodybasics. Jmart out.